Hello and welcome to the REORG Primary Review, where we cover the latest developments in high-yield distressed debt and bankruptcy and feature discussions on issues affecting distressed debt, leverage finance, direct lending, high-yield bonds, high-yield municipals, covenants, private credit, and middle market companies. I'm David Zupkis. This week, REORG's Jim Holloway speaks to REORG alum Andrew Sung, head of research at Alice Credit Partners, to talk capital deployment opportunities in the middle market space and bridging the gap between traditional venture debt and traditional bank financing. In our weekly review coverage, Envision, Bad Bath & Beyond, Elevate Textiles, and Carvana I potential restructurings. The FDIC says losses from SBV and First Citizens collapse may be lower than expected, and the U.S. Supreme Court reverses Second Circuit decision dismissing appeal of a bankruptcy court order approving the assignment of a former Sears lease. And as always, a preview of what's coming next week. It's Monday, April 24th. Good morning and welcome to the Reorg Primary View. I'm James Holloway, a Reorg's outpost in Houston, Texas, and with me today is another resident of the Bayou City, my friend and former colleague Andrew Sung. Andrew is the head of research at Atlas Credit Partners, a middle market focused special situations fund that's based in Houston. Andrew sits on Atlas's investment committee and serves on the board of directors for a number of Atlas's portfolio companies including as a non-executive director at Liquid Glide and as a board observer at Imperium 3 New York, Coherent Logics, and SoundHound AI. Andrew graduated with an AB from Princeton University, and prior to Atlas, he worked at Reorg as a financial analyst. Andrew, thank you and welcome to the podcast. Appreciate you joining us. Atlas Credit Partners. So can you tell me what y'all do and how you do it? Of course. Uh, thanks, Jim. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, you know, I sort of, uh, you, you'd summarize it a little bit, but, you know, we're a Houston, Texas-based uh, special situations credit fund uh, focusing on middle market private credit direct lending and public market distressed debt investing. Um, to date, we've deployed about $750 million into private credit investments, and we're currently investing out of our third private credit vehicle. Um, the firm was founded in late 2019 by a guy named Drew Malozzi. Uh, who was most recently a managing director at Anchorage Capital Group in New York. Um, Drew and I have actually known each other for over 20 years. So when he walked me through the business plan for Atlas and, and the opportunity to head the research team, uh, it was a pretty exciting uh, opportunity for me to, to come down and move to Houston to, to help build the business. Um, so Drew founded the firm really with the thesis that there's a, a pretty unique opportunity to invest in great businesses in transition in the middle markets. Um, you know, transition can mean many different things. It can be growth, it can be restructuring or what have you. But generally speaking, um, you know, we're looking for great businesses that for one reason or another are not at the moment able to access your traditional bank financing. And so they, you know, have to seek credit solutions from, from people such as us. Um, you know, why, why we think there's an opportunity um, within the middle markets um, is that if you look at the business model of many of the large asset managers, um, they're just getting larger and larger and larger. You know, every day you sort of see in the press that uh, Behemoth Credit Fund XYZ has raised $10 billion plus for a private credit vehicle. Um, so they're, they're aggregating assets at, at very uh, high clips, such that their focus has really shifted to larger and larger investment sizes in the 250 to 500 million and above uh, deal size, where we actually think there's a, a large opportunity of overlooked businesses um, that are looking for just capital deployments in the range of call it 50 million to 150 million that 
are really only overlooked simply due to the fact that the investment size is too small uh, to meet some of the larger uh, players' criteria. Um, you know, our overall approach in this is to main fle maintain flexibility between private credit and public credit markets, uh, depending on the opportunity. So, you know, some call this sort of an all-weather approach. Um, you know, so for example, in a credit environment such as March 2020, you know, during the onset of COVID, where uh, public market distressed credit was very attractive, where you had the, the baby being thrown out with the bathwater and, you know, debt of a lot of high quality companies was trading sub 75 cents on the dollar. Um, but, you know, that opportunity quickly went away such that, you know, for the last year plus, um, our overall focus has been primarily on private credit, direct lending opportunities where, you know, we think we can generate alpha through our different differentiated sourcing and through process and, and blocking and tackling execution. Um, and I'd say just the last point I'd make is that um, we think one of our differentiators is um, taking an active approach to private credit where, you know, we actually view our investments as long-term partnerships uh, directly with management teams uh, in order to, to create win-win outcomes for both parties. Okay, well, thank you. That's interesting. Now, uh, there has been a lot of discussion around uh, increased opportunities for shop like yours in our current environment, which is a rather puzzling one. We've got uh, definitely higher interest rates, something of a slowdown in the syndicated loan market, at least relative to the free money of the pandemic years. And of course, the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank seems to put something of a damper on growth capital. So what kind of opportunity set is emerging for you and for shops like yours? It's a great point. And um, it's something that we think has been going on for over a year, but has been probably magnified now, given some of the events that you just mentioned over the last few months. Um, we think there's an opportunity to be net providers of liquidity. And, you know, we're fortunate enough to have uh, to, to have backers on the investing side where uh, they see it the same way. And so um, from our standpoint, you know, we're we've never, never been busier in sourcing deals and, and trying to pick through which which investments to, to really lean into. Um, to borrow a phrase from one of our, our investors, um, we think that growth companies currently, um, which were previously significantly overvalued, are now priced at substantial discounts to intrinsic value. Um, you know, when you see just sort of increase in interest rates and overall market tone, um, growth equity, whether it be sort of the private VC type money or within the public markets, you know, you, you kind of see that uh, a bit with the DSPAC companies. Um, that growth equity has become much more scarce over the last 18 months and even more so over the last three to six months. So we're, we're kind of seeing what we, we believe to be the intersection of growth and value. You know, oftentimes you're traditional value investors are the ones who are looking for to pay 50 cents to buy a dollar uh, where the growth investors are sort of willing to, um, you know, underwrite a business plan that might not be profitable for quite a period of time, but, you know, they're, they're willing to sort of make that bet. But we think those types of businesses now have come back to earth to where um, there's quite a bit of opportunity. Um, so really our focus of late has been in providing debt finance solutions to these growth companies uh, both private and publicly listed where, you know, our capital can either be a supplement or replacement to a growth equity capital raise. Um, if you think about, you know, either middle market companies or growth companies, many of them are still being run by the founders of the businesses who own significant equity stakes, um, such that, you know, a, a VC down round or public market stock issuance at, at 
you know, 52-week low, it's highly costly uh, via dilution such that, you know, um, if we are able to understand and get comfortable with a business plan that, um, you know, call it a, a two to four year time period that all they need is this transitional capital that we're providing. And then on the other side of that, um, you know, the, the company is able to either, you know, grow into the capital structure or they're able to, um, you know, raise equity capital at much better valuations, either through a recovering capital markets condition or through just growth in the overall business. So that's really, um, you know, sort of a case study of how that can be a win-win situation for both where um, the, the, found, the, the equity holders were able to protect their equity at sort of a vulnerable point and were able to, you know, make a, make a hopefully uh, profitable investment at that point. So I think what we're kind of doing here is um, bridging that gap between traditional venture debt and traditional bank financing where, um, you know, our deal sizes have ranged anywhere from, you know, the smallest deal we did last year was 35 million. The largest was 180 million. I'd say right around 100 is probably where uh, where we're targeting. So traditional venture debt usually um, would not extend that far, right? So you'd mentioned Silicon Valley Bank. Um, they usually would tap out around 5, 10, 15 million or so. Um, so we actually um, would run into them quite a bit, not through competition, but companies that we would be sourcing would have existing Silicon Valley bank debt, but, you know, a pretty small amount. Uh, but the company had outgrown that credit facility such that, um, you know, we, we believe that they were sort of ready for a 50 to $100 million solution from us. So that said, though, a lot of these companies still can't go to call it JP Morgan and get SOFR plus 8% financing or SOFR plus 5% financing. Um, they still sort of have some sort of transition to where they're not quite um, able to access the tra traditional, even Levfin markets or traditional um, bank financing markets. Okay, thank you. Now, uh, on the subject of 100 million investments, uh, earlier this week, uh, Atlas announced a deal to provide that amount in strategic finance to a company called SoundHound, SoundHound AI, I think is the correct name, which is engaged in the field of voice artificial intelligence. Um, I wonder if you could tell us what exactly that is and just tell us something about the deal and the data points like collateral or security or whatever that you considered as a lender. Sure. Um, so voice AI, um, we, uh, we've all interacted with devices like uh, Amazon Siri, uh, sorry, Apple Siri or Amazon's Alexa, where you know, the user has to interact with the, with the device with very specific voice commands, such as, you know, what is the temperature? Um, what SoundHound's voice AI platform allows for is, is sort of a much more natural language understanding where the user can ask the device, for instance, do I need an umbrella today? And the device understands the intent of the question and can answer, no, it is not supposed to rain today. So that's just one very simple example. Um, you know, I'd encourage you to just sort of look at some of the online demos of their capabilities in voice-enabled assistance for, um, you know, in automotive uh, display or for food ordering, which, you know, we think are pretty remarkable. So, um, you know, Jim, it, it, one day you might drive through your Whataburger and uh, down in Houston and uh, the order might be 100% accurate and it might be, uh, you know, a a voice enabled AI on the other side. And if it is, we think there's a good chance that it would be a SoundHounds platform. Um, so, you know, you'd asked around the, the collateral, you know, 
the, the core tenet of credit investing has been and always will be um, lending to assets and or lending to cash flows and, and preferably both, right? Um, where we think we've taken this a step further in sort of this thematic of, of lending to growth companies is, you know, given how the economy and how markets have evolved over the course of my career, um, we've actually gained comfort in and believe that there's an opportunity to lend to these growth companies that have very heavy IP portfolios. So we're still lending to assets, but those assets happen to be of an intangible nature. And that's something that traditionally, um, you know, people haven't really done, right? So traditionally, a lender might say, assess the value of a steel mill based on the real estate, the equipment, and let's say they, they put the value of the steel mill at $100 million, which is dependent, of course, in large part on the, the market price of steel and the, the expected price of steel. And with that $100 million asset appraisal, you might lend $40 million, right, for your 40% LTV, which is you know relatively conservative. Um, in sort of the mid 2000s, uh, with the growth in LBOs and very cheap interest rates, um, people got much more comfortable with cash flow based lending, right? So you might have a software company or a SaaS company with uh, you know, material ARR and a very predictable stream of cash flows because you know their uh, churn rates were very low. And so you knew that over the last three years, here was what their EBITDA, what their free cash flow looked like. Um, so you're, you're comfortable lending to them on some leverage multiple on those cash flows. But, you know, a SaaS company doesn't really have many hard assets at all. So um, so if you look at SoundHound, um, currently they have neither substantial hard assets. And historically, um, they've been cash flow negative because of significant investments in R&D. But when we looked at the business, um, we saw a very differentiated IP portfolio. Um, you know, they have approximately 250 patents that protect uh, the core architecture around natural language understanding. And I think when we thought about just holistically the, um, the solution that they were solving for, um, you know, we, obviously it's been very topical in the news seeing AI platforms like ChatGPT and so forth. Uh, you know, Microsoft also made another acquisition in a company called Nuance that is also some, a similar voice AI type application. And they bought that company for, I think, $19 billion or something like that. But going back to, to SoundTown and sort of voice-enabled AI and just sort of thinking about the evolution of, of how users search for information, um, you know, it, it started out with internet connection and you had a desktop computer and then, you know, you had AOL, Google, and Yahoo come out, but you had to type it into the device and it would give you sort of... Um, your set of answers. Now, you know, in around mid 2000s, mobile phone devices became much more prevalent and you could sort of carry that search. Um, and now, you know, you have sort of smaller mo mobile devices and wearables that sort of have internet connectivity. But the, the common thing that many, many, many of these devices have is there's sort of an inherent latency and inconvenience of a keyboard and having to type something in where if you're driving in your car and you want to know, it, <laughs> Going back to the uh, that Whataburger example, Jim, if you're driving on you know I-10, what where's the nearest Whataburger from here? You don't want to have to type that into your display. It would be great to be able to just say that to your your voice um, console and have them tell you here it is and here's here's how you get there and would you like to place an order, right? So uh, we think that voice enabled devices to call on information 
could very well be how search and information evolves. We could be wrong for sure, but um, it, it certainly seems like that could be the direction. So, you know, through our due diligence, we thought that SoundHound's IP was was well ahead of some of the big tech uh, applications and um, that it had substantial strategic value. Um, so that's sort of the on the asset side, the intangible asset side. On the credit side, um, you know, again, traditional uh, cash flows, it probably wouldn't qualify for bank financing, but it's a, it's a credit story that's evolving, improving, that has a very credible and clear path to cash flows that we were able to get comfortable with where, you know, this is all public information where they have a customer backlog in excess of $330 million. So you can get comfortable that there is revenue to be realized over the next few years. Uh, you know, last year's revenue was around 30 million. This year they're guiding to call it anywhere from 40 to 50 million. And they made some really challenging decisions, but, um, you know, sort of decisions to cut some, um, to cut some overhead to where, uh, you know, they're, they're guiding to a credible path to being EBITDA positive by the end of this year. So as we looked at this, this entire situation of, um, you know, what, what the asset base looked like, uh, what the, the credit profile looked like, um, you know, they actually had a small or uh, I think a 20 or $30 million SV, SVB facility in there. So we were happy to go in there with our hundred million dollar facility, um, refinance SVB and provide some incremental cash to the balance sheet that would, you know, more than bridge them to a period of self-sustaining cash flows by, you know, hopefully uh, 2024. So um, overall, I think, you know, the, the, our, our general thesis, was we were very comfortable that the intrinsic value of the business was well in excess of our loan amount to, to provide that margin of safety backed by, you know, that substantial IP portfolio as collateral. Um, but again, if you just sort of look at the, 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 the general characteristics, it doesn't really fit in the box of your traditional either asset-based or cash flow-based lending. Okay. Now, now you said that y'all had been busier than, than ever before. Uh, is there a line of people knocking on your door or, or how do, how exactly do you source your deals? It, it's a good question. Um, you know, we, uh, we, we like to think that that's a big differentiator of us. Um, so this year we'll aim to put on about call it 10 to 12 private credit investments. Um, in order to actually get to 10 to 12, we'll probably evaluate well over 250. And I think if I were to sort of just run rate the pace that we've been on um, lately, it, it'll be well in excess of that. And that, you know, every day we're having multiple um, calls with new management teams, um, you know, oftentimes sort of within within a few minutes, you kind of know that it's probably not going to be a fit for us. But um, it, it sort of goes to that point of, you know, the, the top of your funnel has to be pretty broad. Um, to be able to find those hopefully 10 to 12 diamonds in the rough that you're able to find. So uh, to your point, though, in the current environment, um, a lot of companies that probably would not have taken our call a year ago um, are, are willing to take our call. I think due in part, you know, um, we've had a, a few uh, publicized uh, deals out there to where people can sort of see that, um, you know, what our capabilities are. But, you know, I think our sort of um, general approach has been more to sort of go up in quality. So as interest rates and credit spreads have widened, we've sort of just aimed to sort of leave our return thresholds kind of where, where they were, but hopefully find better companies that are maybe um, in, in today's environment willing to willing to pay a little more 
uh, for that liquidity. Um, so you'd sort of ask, you know, how we source our deals. It's really an all above in all of the above approach, right? Where you have your traditional sources of investment bankers, restructuring advisors, brokers, and you know, sort of your personal and professional networks. Uh, but primarily, um, our sourcing comes through our management team network. Oftentimes, most of our deals don't involve an advisor or a banker. Um, and coincidentally, if I just look at my email now, um, about 30 minutes ago, I got an email from one of our portfolio company CEOs offering to make an intro to another CEO. So we, we always kind of joke here that you know, we, we think our Yelp reviews are pretty good because um, oftentimes CEOs will put us in touch with other CEOs. Um, and, and hopefully that's something that as we continue to grow, um, we'll, we'll just see more and more of. Um, you know, I think that at this point, we're humble enough to know that we're not at the top of the call list for the best restructuring advisors. Um, we hope one day we will be as we continue to grow. Um, so we know that for us to be creative and, and find really good opportunities, we can't just sit sit on our hands and wait for the phone to ring. Uh, we have to be pretty proactive. And um, again, a lot of that comes through um, our networks um, with management teams and personal networks and so forth. So um, added to that point, uh, you know, I, I think one of the advantages of having a lot of our processes not be banker run, and again, we don't have any issue with um, having advisors involved. We think that they, they oftentimes add a ton of, ton of process, ton of, um, uh, you know, value through process, but um, where you probably won't see us competing much or where, you know, there are 10 lenders competing for one deal and it sort of becomes a race to the bottom on both price and protections. Um, that's not something that our investors want to do. It's not something that we want to do. Um, so a lot of times with this direct to direct to company or direct to management team approach, we're really competing against growth equity raise um, solutions to where, you know, they're comparing our debt solution versus a growth equity raise solution. And, you know, sometimes we win, sometimes we lose, but um, you know, I think that to, to what we, you know, maybe tie a bow on this, uh, what we had discussed earlier, um, that sort of transitional debt solution is much, much more attractive to, to these business owners than, than it was um, that then a growth equity raises. Okay. Well, thank you, Andrew. Great comments and insight. And, uh, Last question, if I may, because I get asked this a lot. What's the best barbecue in Houston? Oh, um, I, I've been going to Pit Room, um, which is down, I think, on Richmond. Uh, so I would probably say that place. Um, I will say uh, Rudy's, the gas station chain, um, has excellent barbecue as well. So I, I would put the, those two as probably my two favorite. But, you know, if there's a... Uh, a part two of this podcast, I, I say we just go and uh, get some ribs and brisket and do it on the deck at the pit room. Okay, absolutely. And Rudy's will be, uh, we'll, we'll appreciate that shout out. Well, thank you very <laughs> much, Andrew Sung. Best luck to you and Atlas Credit Partners. And thank everybody for listening. Goodbye. For in-court coverage, we take a look at SVB Financial Group, LTL Management, Centerworld, and Sears Holding. Staff at the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation expects that losses from the failures of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank will be lower than the $22.5 billion previously reported. 
Patrick Mitchell, director of the FDIC's Division of Insurance and Research, said that FDIC staff is refining the cost estimate after the sale of assets and liabilities of Silicon Valley Bridge Bank to First Citizens Bank and will release the new estimates once finalized. In a highly anticipated bench ruling, the bankruptcy judge presiding over LTL Management's second Chapter 11 case imposed a limited preliminary injunction restricting talc litigation against LTL parent Johnson & Johnson and other non-debtor parties. The court's 60-day injunction will prohibit trials but not new complaints and discovery against the protected parties. Cineworld obtained conditional approval of its disclosure statement, allowing the debtors to solicit votes on their plan ahead of a June 12th confirmation hearing. However, the court delayed the hearing on Cineworld's proposed exit financing and backstop after an ad hoc group of non-RSA secured lenders represented by Glenn Ager advanced a competing finance proposal. The bankruptcy court gave Diamond Sports Group the green light for further interim cash collateral use over objections from Major League Baseball and four teams who have not been paid post-edition rights fees under the Regional Sports Network telecast agreements at DSG. However, the judge admonished DSG for not paying the teams and ordered the debtors to make interim payments equal to 50% of the contractual rights fees ahead of a key May 31st hearing. The U.S. Supreme Court reversed a Second Circuit decision dismissing the Mall of the Americas' appeal of a bankruptcy court order approving the assignment of a former Sears lease to Transform Holdco, the purchaser of Sears assets. The nation's highest court ruled that statutory limitations on appellate review of Section 363 sale orders are not jurisdictional and can therefore be waived by the purchaser. Envision, Bad Bath & Beyond, Elevate Textiles, and Carvana round out this week's list of potential restructurings. Amsurg lenders are working with restructuring advisors as negotiations revolve around whether Amsurg would file for bankruptcy along with Envision Healthcare. Since Amsurg was set up as a bankruptcy remote entity, if and when Envision Healthcare files Chapter 11, the ambulatory surgery services provider does not necessarily need to file as well, according to sources. Companies and their lenders are also discussing treatment of an intercompany loan between Amsterg and Envision and the 17% of Amsterg not designated as an unrestricted subsidiary. An ad hoc group of second lien lenders to Amsterg is receiving advice from Millbank and Ducera partners, while an ad hoc group of first lien lenders to Amsterg is represented by Wachtell as counsel. Bebeth and Beyond, according to sources, may have trouble meeting the covenants recently agreed to in its Fourth Amendment credit agreement due to share limitations. Reorg estimates that Bebeth & Beyond has issued over 130 million shares of stock since April 10th, when, as reported in its S1, it had 178.2 million shares of common stock available for future issuance. With the stock having closed at $0.30 cents per share on Thursday, April 20th, the company may not have enough shares available to raise a requisite $35 million in the April 19-25 to period as agreed. Elevate Textiles and sponsor Platinum Equity are negotiating with lenders on a potential bankruptcy filing to hand over substantially all reorganized equity to lenders in exchange for debt cancellation. Platinum Equity is expected to receive a small amount of new equity following any restructuring, the sources have said. Lenders are also expected to receive take-back paper. However, negotiations are ongoing and the parties may execute a restructuring out of court. Carvana extended the expiration date to May 3rd from Wednesday, April 19th for each of its previously announced offers to exchange outstanding existing notes for up to $1 billion. The company also increased the consideration for holders of its 5.625% senior notes due 2025 to $838.75 from $788.75. We initiated coverage this week on paper products company Domtar. The company's revenue increased and gross margin expanded in 2022 after contracting the past few years, driven by improved pricing. Domtar, however, remains affected by a continually decreasing demand for most of its existing paper products as well as increased competition. Resolute, Domtar's recent acquisition aimed to add capacity, also experienced a similar trend of declining shipments and increased pricing during 2022. 
Also in new coverage, Way Reorg, Apollo Commercial Real Estate Finance, Inc., a mortgage REIT exposed primarily to hotel, residential, office, and retail properties, has been successful in continuing to expand its portfolio and bring up average yields to offset higher funding costs, resulting in positive free cash flow through 2022, more than offsetting dividends paid to shareholders. However, the company could face rising pressure from commercial mortgage delinquencies and increasingly restrictive borrowing terms and costs. A large loan to build an ultra-luxury residential new construction at 111 West 57th Street in New York City could threaten ARI's cash flows. In crypto news this week, the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission Chair Gary Gensler faced criticism of the SEC's recent enforcement actions and regulatory posture toward the cryptocurrency industry at a House Financial Services Committee hearing. The SEC filed a new suit against crypto exchange Bittrex and former CEO accusing Bittrex of operating as an unregistered securities exchange broker and clearing agency. Voyager Digital may soon close the sale of its assets to Binance. A U.S. federal court paved the way for the transaction when it approved an agreement between the debtors and the official committee of unsecured creditors and the U.S. government to lift a stay on Voyager's plan confirmation order pending appeal. In the Celsius Network Chapter 11 cases, the UCC received permission to bring a class claim for fraud and other non-contract claims on behalf of Celsius account holders. The Celsius debtors announced that they are considering three bids in addition to their stocking horse bid from NovaWolf. Top red stories this week included Credit Suisse files $400 million claim against SoftBank and English High Court. Celgene CBR holders add executive knowledge allegations to bolster dismissed complaint against Bristol Myers Squibb. Bankruptcies continue to rise in North America with national city media among 21 filers. Adler fence off challenge to restructuring plant. China property sales show signs of improvement, but investors remain risk averse. Supreme Court holds purchasers may waive bankruptcy sale order mootness protections. ST claims agent, X claims settlement approved. UST finalizing settlement with Donlin Ricardo. No agreement yet with BMC. And now here's Kate Thomas from New York with the week ahead. Hi, this is Kate Thomas, and here are some highlights of the week ahead. Bright and early on Monday morning, the Aero Technologies debtors will be back in court defending their cases from motions to dismiss filed by the Combat Arms Earplug Committee, the Respirator Committee, and the U.S. trustee. The evidentiary hearing is expected to last through Tuesday, which is when the Purdue Pharma debtors are scheduled to seek approval of bid procedures for the sale of their Avrio assets. The Purdue debtors are also seeking approval of a stocking horse agreement with Atlantis Consumer Health Care, which would pay a total of $397 million for the Avrio assets, protected by a breakup fee of almost $12 million and reimbursement of almost $4 million for reasonable and documented costs. Moving to Wednesday, SVB Financial Group has its second day hearing. At a recent hearing, counsel for the debtor said that the debtor is continuing to separate itself from failed subsidiary Silicon Valley Bank, on which the debtor depended for, among other things, employees. Counsel for the debtor said that it hopes to have sufficient employees on board to operate the estate in the capital business by May 1st. Moving to Thursday, the Aldrich Pump debtors will be in court defending their cases against a motion to dismiss filed by a group of mesothelioma victims who argue that the cases should be dismissed because the debtors are, quote, not and have never been financially distressed, unquote. Arguments that sound an awful lot like those in the hearing on dismissal of the Aero Technologies cases. Also on Thursday, the reverse mortgage and loyalty ventures debtors will both seek disclosure statement 
approval and planned confirmation of the respective disclosure statements and plans. On Friday, the Catalina marketing debtors will be doing the same. In addition to planned confirmation, the reverse mortgage debtors will be seeking an extension of the exclusive periods to file and solicit a Chapter 11 plan by 90 days through June 28th and August 28th, respectively. And the Official Unsecured Creditors Committee in the case will be seeking standing to pursue claims against former dip lender Leadenhall, including claims challenging the extent and priority of some of Leadenhall's security interests. That's all for now. Have a great week. Thank you again for tuning in to the REARC Primary Review and our weekly review. Find all our podcasts on the REARC.com webinars and podcast page, as well as Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, and Amazon. Hope your families are healthy and safe. Have a great weekend and see you next Monday.